You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu Peace and blessings to our listeners out there. Welcome to Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Talib Man, in our studios here in South London. I'm just looking out. Uh, it actually looks not too bad. So I hope uh, uh, the weather is as good uh, in your part of the world or your part of the UK as it is here in South London. Um, I mean, we always like to talk about the weather. We are in Britain, and uh, by all accounts, we're due some snow, or some parts of the north and Scotland have already seen some snow showers. So I think we're due another cold snap. Uh, hopefully, fingers crossed, it's not going to be as cold as that we had uh, about a month ago, which um brought down by these uh, Arctic winds from the north. Um, but, uh, yeah, let's hope that um, it's not going to be too cold uh, in uh, well, for this week. But, you know, that brings me <laughs> quite nicely uh, onto our subjects for the day because we normally deal with, um, we've got a two-hour show this afternoon. So normally we would have uh, one topic each hour. So our topics actually uh, this afternoon are winter in conflict areas. So just seeing the impact uh, that the weather, the winter has on these conflict zones and uh, the how it actually affects those who are unfortunately victims of conflict, whether they be asylum seekers, but definitely refugees uh, fleeing from the conflict, whether it be from the Ukraine, whether it be uh, uh, Syria, uh, Afghanistan, or uh, the Yemen, so you know, or Myanmar, um, if we look globally. Um, so we'll be looking at how the weather affects their migration and their their movements. That'll be in the first hour, and then the second hour, around about five o'clock, after the five o'clock news, we'll be looking at uh, preaching. Uh, is preaching a convert or else statement? Uh, or that statement, is that how uh, preaching is encapsulated? Or is that how people nowadays perceive um, preaching? You know, do you, when you're walking on the street, when you see a, uh, a, a kind of like a religious, a religious stall, whether it be um, uh, promoting Islam or promoting Christianity or promoting Buddhism, whatever religion it's promoting, do you have that, I suppose... Um, 
you know that that kind of <laughs> uh, feeling that you should move away from it. Um, that uh, you feel that actually you 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 don't kind of like have that inclination towards listening to whatever has been said. Um, you know, is preaching more of a grind, or are you one of those who are interested and you don't think that? Uh, the sort of preaching that happens on our streets and around on social media sites even uh, is that way inclined um, you know you can always always join in the conversation call me uh, here at the studio on 0208 687 uh, or tweet me at voice of islam uk uh, it's always good to see or i wouldn't say see but hear what our listeners views are out there but uh, without further ado, I'm just going to go straight into the first of our topics today, which is uh, winter in conflict areas. And just to give you a, I suppose, a taste of um, the numbers that we're looking at, right? So uh, of people who are refugees. Now, at the end of, and this is from the Refugee Council website, um, at the end of 2021, around 89 million people were forcibly displaced across the world. Of these, 27 million were refugees, whilst 53 million were internally displaced within the country of origin. Now, 72% of the world's refugees are living in countries which are actually only neighbouring their country of origin, uh, which they themselves are often in developing countries. Now, over... Uh, seven or almost seven million people. Seven million people have fled conflict in Syria currently, and many more are displaced inside the country. Turkey is the biggest refugee hosting uh, country in the world. Now, at the end of last year, 2022, uh, it was providing safety to 3.7 million Syrian refugees. Um, now, as a comparative, at the end of February 2021. The UK had actually uh, resettled 20,319 refugees from Syria. Uh, now, this was under the Vulnerable Persons Resettlement Scheme. Uh, now, this also includes the, uh, the 239 refugees who were resettled prior uh, to the target of the, or that target of 20,000 being set. Now, the UK is is home to just 1% of the 27 million refugees who um, who were forcibly displaced across the world. So that just gives you a flavour or it gives you a, an idea of the magnitude of the problem that uh, we have in terms of refugees. And actually in uh, 2021, more than two-thirds of the refugees uh, and Venezuelans across the world came from just five countries. Now, uh, Syria, uh, that's 6.8 million. Venezuela, 4.6 million. Afghanistan, 2.7 million. Uh, South Sudan, 2.4. And Myanmar, 1.2. So you can see the bulk of those refugees are coming from uh, either Syria, Venezuela, or Afghanistan. And that's not to say that uh, you disregard the other places. Now, you know, there have been not uh, or there haven't been any uh, world wars since the Second World War. Um, but we have had 
on and off conflicts throughout the last 60 years. Now, in the 22 countries of the Eastern Mediterranean region of the World Health Organization, the WHO, over 80% of the population either is in conflict or in a conflict situation, I should say, or has experienced uh, a conflict. Now, wars, obviously, they destroy communities, families, and often disrupt the development of uh, social and economic uh, you know, development of those nations. Uh, there are also the byproducts of and consequences. Uh, obviously, besides death, uh, there are there's endemic poverty, malnutrition, disability, economic and social decline, uh, and last but not least, the mental uh, suffering that is occurring in these countries. Now, in winter, temperatures obviously begin to plummet, so it's easy to forget how. Uh, cold we can get. Now, snowfall and sub-zero temperatures are not unusual in the Middle East. Uh, And during the past few years, due to climate change, this situation of climate change has made it even more difficult. Um, As I said, uh, in Syria, uh, the number of people in need of humanitarian assistance has reached the highest since the start of the uh, crisis. So, you know, we're, we're talking about the basic necessities, not just basic necessities, but those of food, medicine, and clean water. Uh, now, according to the UN, a total of 14.6 million people need support, 1.2 million more than the year before. So, you know, the situation, uh, if we just look at uh, Syria, is is you know, devastating in terms of, you know, the, the, the cost uh, to the you know, to, to humanity as such, I mean, and also if we look at uh, you know Afghanistan as well. So it's been a year after foreign vo- uh, forces, uh, primarily the U.S. and the U.K., uh, had left Afghanistan, and the Taliban uh, really took over the governance of the country. Now the country's economy has withered. Uh, if not to a standstill, and, de- and development aid and assets have largely been frozen, and hence, you know, these acts have left the f- country facing its most serious risk of famine in 20 years. Uh, and just to give you an idea of how cold it gets there, you know, temperatures can drop as low as minus two, 12 degrees. Um, and so, obviously, you know, children sleeping outside without the proper winter clothing. Or heating are at serious risk from hypothermia, uh, pneumonia, and you know, easily can freeze to death. Now, to talk more regarding this, I'm joined by my first guest of the afternoon, Cristiano. Uh, <coughs> excuse me, Tanazi. Now, Cristiano is a journalist, writer, TV, and radio producer uh, that has actually travelled for years, both in Europe, uh, both in Europe and. Uh, other countries, especially on the southern side of the Mediterranean, uh, dealing with these sensitive issues such as integration, migration, terrorism and conflicts. Peace be upon you, Cristiano. Uh, thank you for joining me on the Drive Time show this afternoon. Thank you, too. So we're talking about you know the harsh reality of winter, uh, especially for these refugees. Now, what are the specific difficulties encountered by communities which are affected by conflict in, you know, in the Middle East during this winter season? I mean, you know, if we, you know, like you to focus on the implications for the migration uh, of those uh, of those refugees. 
Uh, well, uh, the difficulties are different depending on the context, mm-hmm. uh, country by country. But, for example, uh, there are countries in which there are no organized and well-managed refugee camps, uh, others where there are few or no official refugee camps, and still others where uh, official refugee camps do not exist, uh, like in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I can give you some, 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 some examples. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Turkey, there are some official camps, but the vast majority of the people uh, live uh, lives in rented houses or in some structures set up by NGOs. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in Lebanon, as I said, there are no camps run by the government, but some self-managed camps, and they have to depend on international aid, and the people live in, in really extreme conditions there, uh, especially in the north of the country. Uh, the winter is, is harsh, and some people have died in the past few years uh, because of the cold. Um, and, and so living living in camps uh, is, is it's really difficult and leads to depression and isolation. And I think that in the winter months, these psychological conditions increase, uh, not to mention permanent problems such as overpopulation, uh, lack of services, medical care, and etc., so when you say that there's a, a dis, you, you mentioned three distinct uh, types of camps, those are which are organized. Um, but what about those ones that you mentioned which aren't organized? So who, you know, do these camps that spring up on, say, for instance, uh, you know, the, the countries which are bordering those countries of conflict? I mean, how, how is food, water, heating administered there then? I mean, depends by the NGOs. Uh, right. I saw some 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 IDP camps in, in Syria, for example, next mm-hmm. to the border of with, with Turkey, and <clears throat> you know they, they 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 depend they depend just just by the, the NGOs. But you know it's difficult to enter in Syria, for example. Mm-hmm. It's very risky. So uh, and nobody controls these camps. So there is a lot of violence also inside these camps. Uh, and for the normal people, for the common people, it's very difficult to live there. But they had to do it because they had no chance to, to, to live, for example. So, mm. Uh, mm. Yeah. so they're forced into that situation because, you know, it's either that or just, you know, just, just be out on the on the roads or be out in the countryside in the winter. That's, a, you know, obviously it's a very terrible situation to be in. Now, according to your experience, Cristiano, I mean, in which way does media representation of these conflicts in the Middle East, say, for instance, uh, during the winter, shape public understanding and perception of the situation? Because, you know, we do have uh, the occasion when we're during this this winter period, we'll see um, charities showing you know, images of uh, refugees in these camps and you know but in terms of you know how how can um you know in your experience have you seen has there been an increase because you know we're seeing these numbers they're not they're not going down in terms of uh, refugees they're only increasing uh, year on year so uh, you know what's your well your in your opinion you know how has the media um you know dealt with this it, it depends by the media and by the journalists, mm-hmm. uh, and, the, and depends also by on your sensibility. Uh, obviously, um, winter brings attention to those who suffer and live in worse conditions than we do. But you know, it, especially around Christmas, and, and very often in, in the Western imagination, is thought 
uh, that the Middle East is also in winter a warm place. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, which which for many countries it is not. It's really cold. Uh, for example, in Iraq, uh, even in Iraq or Syria, it is cold in winter and it can snow. Uh, and so I think showing this, this place in the winter months bring us back to the reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and but but this depends by by the media I think because you know uh, when I when I when I, I work in these places I try to to describe also positive situations and and to denounce if the situation are, are not going well but but it, uh, sometimes there are some some kind of how to say uh, some some the the media are focusing just just. Just uh, to to move the people uh, to to compassion, but it's just mm-hmm. because it's it's, not, it's around Christmas, and then maybe they forget it. Mm-hmm. And it, it happens. In, it happens, for example, in the summer. It's the opposite. People doesn't doesn't care about about the, the big problems of the world, so they want just to spend their holidays. So mm-hmm. The media <laughs> the, the, the normally don't touch this kind of stuff mm-hmm. in, in the summer. Mm. So yeah, what you're saying, uh, Cristiano, is that. Uh, you know, this this um, I suppose focus right uh, of media is somewhat uh, wanes. Yeah, actually lessens during the summer months, uh, whilst maybe during winter time there's more of a focus on it. There's more uh, of a concentration of news stories regarding refugee or the plight of refugees, and that maybe actually to tell you, uh, if truth were to be told, it should actually be uh, a focal point or under the microscope all year round as opposed to just uh, in the winter months. Yeah, and, and we have to, to, to say also that in this period, especially in Europe, we are all focusing about the crisis in, in Ukraine. So mm-hmm. uh, the attention about the Middle East, about the problems of refugees uh, is not so high. Uh, yeah, in Italy, we, we are... Uh, we are we pay the attention to, to this, this problem of migration because we, we uh, especially in the winter, there are a lot of people that is, that is trying to, to cross the sea, mm-hmm. uh, also in the winter, and, and it's very risky. But um, normally now the attention is, is focused especially on the Ukrainian crisis. Mm-hmm, true. Um, so, Cristiano, how do issues such as lack of access to essential resources like heat and fuel, uh, shelter and health care uh, actually aggravate the suffering of those who are already uh, victims of conflict and displacement during the winter? Well, uh, the lack of access to basic necessities such as water, electricity, electricity, gas, decent housing, medical care, uh, affects severely uh, these uh, communities of refugees. Um, these are universally recognized as rights to which everyone should have access. Mm-hmm. But we know that this is not the case in many parts of the world, even where there is not no war. Uh, in winter, the streets become become bogs, um, mud, and water. The houses often have no heat, eating. The water freezes. Uh, you are often indoors all day. I, I would also add that the, the lack of employment and the impossibility of sending children to school mm-hmm. regularly uh, this all leads to increased poor living conditions. And I said before, this leads to depression, mm-hmm. the sense of desperation. I met people in Lebanon who were willing to sell a, a kidney 
in order to, wow. to get out of that condition. Mm-hmm. So uh, around the, uh, you know, around those people, obviously not only in winter, but there is a plenty for looters and people who want to make money by exploiting their exploiting their needs. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's it's, it's terrible. Mm. So I suppose, like you, you bring up the example of Lebanon, and that the government there or the authority there doesn't really have um, that kind of power to um, have civil uh, within within Lebanon to have civil, um, I suppose, stability, and that enables, unfortunately, like you're saying, looters, uh, black marketeers to to really just to you know to to take advantage of those who are still there yeah yeah for sure i mean everybody knows the condition of the the, 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 the lebanon i mean mm-hmm. and uh, it, it's, it's really difficult to live uh, day by day in that kind that country so uh, and you know obviously there, there are the, the united there is the united nation there but uh, there there's no official camps so um, you can you can find these these camps, the refugee camps, uh, far away from the cities, mm-hmm. and, and it's very difficult for the people also to reach the hospitals to mm-hmm. to, to find, find find food and and then the prices are increasing. So it's yeah, I mean I remember that I was in Beirut and the day before going to this camp I I. I I wanted just to, to describe the the, the, the nightlife in Beirut. So it was so you know so 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 nice with people going to the discotheque and mm-hmm. and having fun. And the day and the day after, I went to the opposite side of the world. I mean, because I I I went to this refugee camp uh, that was near to the border with with Syria mm-hmm. in the northern part of the country, and there was nothing. I mean, so, you know. Mm. So basically, you're just saying, yeah, just just you know, in the space of a couple of miles from one side of the border to the other, it's literally night and day, really, <laughs> uh, yeah, in terms yeah, of society, yeah. right? You know, one it's like desolate, almost uh, a wasteland, whilst you know the other it seems to be um, uh, just a normality. I suppose, you know, could you tell uh, myself and our listeners out there, you know, some some you know, tell us some of the other important factors that make communities, uh, you know, affected by conflict more or less resilient. I mean, what are what are those factors? Uh, I think that that uh, it's really important to have to have nearby you, your family, or relatives, uh, friends. Uh, um, it, you know, it's different from from. Camp to refugee camp to to refugee camp because, mm-hmm. um, for example, in Greece uh, there are many communities, people that are coming from many countries. So the people normally divided by by ethnicity or religion, and uh, in, in these cases it's important to to to, to recreate uh, the condition that maybe you had before in the normal life. Mm-hmm. So I know that that's difficult because you are you're not in your normal life, but it's for your mental stability. It's, it's, I think that it's, it, you have to do something because in a, in a refugee camp, uh, most of the day you are just waiting for for, for food or mm-hmm. for 
I mean, that, yeah, I suppose I yeah. th- that that is yeah. the problem because when you're fleeing from conflict, um, and you know, we're very lucky in the UK. Uh, the last time we had conflict was World War Two, uh, being an island country, and um, so you know, we in this country haven't experienced or had that experience, that fear of having to, you know, run from um, conflict. And to actually have that uh, constant fear, uh, that fear for your life, I suppose, right, it must exact such a terrible toll on, you know, that individual person. Um, And that's not just talking about the mental side. It's just when you actually don't have clothing you don't have food you don't have shelter and you even if you are able to um secure those you know basic necessities uh of you know hum, you know of being a human being then you know where you know you there has to be an element of hope for the future yeah you know i i saw for example i saw a refugee camp in rwanda mm-hmm. that was created in in the 90s so people stay there more than 20 years and, and just waiting mm-hmm. because they didn't have, they have nothing to do. Mm-hmm. So you depend by by the, the the charities, by the international donors, and your future is it doesn't exist. Mm. And and you 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 feel that you are useless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think that it's important to to, to find something. I mean, mm, to do mm. uh, something that 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 uh, remember that uh, you are a human being. Mm. You 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 are you are a part of humanity, and you want to have also a future. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. To have some you know some some positive impact and positive input into society as a whole. Well, Cristiano, it's been a uh, pleasure speaking to you this afternoon. Thank you very much for joining me on the Drive Time Show this, this afternoon. Thank you. Bye. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Uh, 0208-687-7878 or tweet me at Voice of Islam UK if you want to join in the conversation. I'm actually uh, have my next guest straight away uh, with me, uh, James Walker, who is a also a freelance journalist based in Glasgow. Now, James specializes in reporting on foreign affairs, politics and social justice issues. He's also the proud recipient of the 2021 Gold Award. Uh, peace and blessings be upon you, James. Thank you for joining me on the Drive Time Show. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. So I've just spoken to Cristiano uh, regarding and his experiences, mainly in uh, those areas of Lebanon, uh, those conflict areas there uh, in the South Mediterranean. And you know, our program today is looking at the harsh reality, you know, of winter for these refugees. Now, you know, let's let's turn our focus more onto. I suppose, more recent conflict, which is the Ukraine-Russian conflict. Uh, I mean, including the suspension of the national uh, natural gas supplies and the uh, detection of oil leaks in pipelines, which has contribu- contributed to the energy crisis which has gripped Europe, uh, and also the impact on people living in the region during the winter months. I mean, how has that conflict... Uh, is it just you know, the, the impact that it's had on energy resources? I mean, what other impacts has there been or are there? 
Yeah, so I mean, it's obviously had a profound impact um, across the continent, across across the world, really. Um, I mean, as you say, the, um, the suspension of, of gas from Russia, um, the massive Nord Stream 1 pipeline that uh, provided 40% of Europe's natural gas being mm-hmm. suspended from September last year. I mean, it's obviously had a huge impact. Um as you say, on, on the energy crisis, first of all, uh, 40% is not a small number. Um, Russia cut gas flows to the EU by around 80% between May and October last year. Um, and obviously this has led to uh, a huge rise in, in gas prices. That's calmed down a little bit recently, but mm-hmm. the effect is still being felt by households um, across Europe. Um, I mean, as you say, you know, when it comes to a rise in energy prices, this doesn't just have uh, an impact on on your gas bills, um, mm-hmm. it's having an impact on poverty, um, it's having an impact um, in, in some cases, it's difficult to say now because we're still in, in, in the winter, but it mm-hmm. uh, can impact um, people's survival as well. Uh, just in the UK, for example, um, each year, um, there are a huge amount of excess death and obviously with uh, with energy prices being so high um, across the entirety of the continent, the, the fear is that uh, more people um, will die. So it, it, it has has huge effects across a huge swathes of, uh, of, of mm, mm. I mean, one of the, I suppose, the problems has been highlighted, say, for instance, for us in the UK regarding uh, this energy crisis is our dependence on uh, fossil fuels, you know, gas mm-hmm. and um, gas and uh, oil or petrol. And our lack of capacity to actually store gas, which uh, I believe it's due to mainly this current government uh, getting rid of those storage facilities, um, which has uh, impacted uh, and actually boosted or you know kind of like um, increased the price of uh, the gas in this country. And do you think that you know? It's not just a case of, like you pointed out, um, just increased costs in your electricity bills, your gas bills, but the knock-on, well, there's an impact uh, to the wider community as well in the UK because, you know, that I've, I've, you know I'm 50 plus years old, but I've never heard, say for instance, I mean, we're very lucky in the UK to be quite affluent compared to a lot mm-hmm. of countries. But to actually have the word or the phrase fuel poverty linked to the UK, I've never come across that in 50-odd years. And to actually have that um, moniker, I suppose, uh, given to the UK now and given to a lot of households who will experience fuel poverty um, is bewildering, really. No, it is. It it really is shocking. Um, And I, I spoke with someone at... National Energy Action recently, which mm-hmm. is a, a leading fuel poverty charity here in the UK. Uh, and I spoke with someone there, um, and they've had reports of some really, really sort of shocking sort of case studies of, of, of families, of households resorting to uh, burning furniture indoors, um, wow. which is not only uh, shocking, but dangerous. Mm, it's dangerous, um, yeah. only, eating, only eating cold meals. Mm-hmm. Um, They've had reports of people covering windows with newspaper for extra insulation. Um, extra insulation because um, the UK's uh, leaky homes are 
research of standard are also the least efficient in, in Western Europe. They're notoriously drafty. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I say notoriously drafty, um, it tends to be uh, the poorest that have the draftiest homes as well, mm-hmm. which um, which is obviously another issue. Another example that I was told is that you've had reports of um, families not sending their kids to school because they can't afford the electricity to wash their uniforms. Wow. So we're talking about how, you know, an energy crisis can affect Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a variety of different things. I mean, that's that's education, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's but it's okay because our prime minister is going to concentrate on um, increasing the leaving or increasing uh, maths, right, for uh, school leavers. Yeah. So there's there, there's there's priorities that the government yeah. are are invested in. Uh, but to bring us back to uh, the concerns w- with weather and conflict areas, yeah, James. I mean, what are the most pressing uh, concerns facing people living, actually living in these conflict-affected areas uh, during specifically these winter months? Well, I think particularly, say, in conflict-affected areas, I think the most pressing concern is is survival. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I mean by that is that millions, whether it's Ukraine or or, or elsewhere, you know, millions are lacking some of the basic resources, whether it's water, food, or heat, that are needed to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, you know, obviously while uh, many are under a constant threat of bombardment, of violence, um, of trauma. Um, I mean, say in Ukraine, um, as well, this is using words from uh, the NATO Secretary General, you know, Russia are essentially using this winter as a weapon of war against the Ukrainian mm-hmm. population. Yeah. Um, you know, as many as 10 million Ukrainians recently have, have, have had no access to power mm-hmm. um, because um, they're struggling to keep their bombarded electricity system alive as, you know, uh, the Russian army is targeting Ukraine's utilities um, with rocket and drone strikes. So, you know, even with uh, many families, many, many people, you know, lacking this heat, it's also a question of when when will they have a, the next blackout? When will mm. they not have, uh, you know, access to water because, you know, the, the water utility has been bombed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I would say the most pressing concern, quite simply, is survival. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, it just sounds so, I suppose, uh, dystopian. Right. Because, you know, we don't have that idea. Uh, I think I was mentioning it to our first guest of the afternoon, Cristiano, that, you know, in the UK and in Europe, we haven't. Re- well, uh, kind of like the eastern side of Europe, we haven't had uh, or I should say more of the western side of Europe, as you look on the, the on the map, you know, the threat of war or conflict for since World War Two. I mean, bring it back to the UK and we touch or you touched on this. Now, how has the UK been disproportionately affected uh, by this energy crisis? Mm-hmm. I mean, compared to other Western European countries like France, Italy, Germany. I mean, despite actually not importing uh, a significant amount of gas from Russia, why are we paying so much? Yeah, I mean, um, before the war, we were only importing about 4%, I think, mm-hmm. in 2021. Uh, now we now now it's zero. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, well, we, we weren't sort of relying directly on Russia. Um, but the UK, like the rest of the world, we're not immune to market factors. Mm-hmm. Um, Russia restricting supplies, you know, to, to mainland Europe led to shortages 
on the international gas market, which ended up in inflated prices from, say, Norway, where Britain gets around 60% of its supplies now. Um, The reason why we're disproportionately uh, affected compared to the rest of Europe um, goes down to what I mentioned before about our notoriously leaky homes. Mm -hmm. Um, But beyond that, the vast majority of homes in the UK, about 85%, use gas to provide heat. And that's compared with with fewer than 50% in, in, say, France and Germany. Mm -hmm. Um, We also dwarf other countries in terms of the share of electricity generated by gas as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is because we've traditionally relied on on our North Sea gas fields, uh, Mm -hmm. which are now in decline. Um, And it's still a little bit up in arms to what extent we're going to try to explore um, Mm -hmm. more uh, North Sea gas fields. But, um, yeah, those are the main reasons why we're disproportionately vulnerable. Um, It's because we rely on gas uh, our homes, uh, infrastructure-wise, are mm. are not efficient, um, and because we we are part of this world, mm. Mm. Um, and what happens outside of the UK still impacts us. Yeah, to to a greater extent. So, I mean, really, it's it's uh, I suppose this current government and previous governments who have made uh, I suppose grand promises regarding self sufficiency in energy production. Um, they need to actually really kind of like uh, instead of just coming up with a lot of hot air, um, you know, actually do you know do do the stuff on the ground and actually provide us with more maybe you know recyclable energy. But uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you the, today, James. Thank you very much for joining me on the Drive Time Show this afternoon. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. 0208-687-7878 or tweet me at Voice of Islam UK. And um, whilst we're on that uh, top topic, I, I'm actually joined straight away by our next guest, who is Sanj uh, Srikanthan, who is the chief executive at the international disaster relief charity Shelterbox. Now, Shelterbox is a charity based in Cornwall. Now, it was founded in 2000 by the local Rotary Club, and since then has supported more than 2 million people across 98 countries. The charity specializes in emergency shelter and provides shelter and essential aid items to people affected by disaster or conflict around the world. Good afternoon, Sanj. Thank you. Uh, Peace and blessings be upon you. Thank you for joining me on the Drive Time Show. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me on. So um, how does the cost of living crisis affect shelter boxes operations uh, and actually your ability to respond to disaster and conflicts around the world currently? Well, we're really aware of the cost that households here in the UK are facing. Mm-hmm. And of course, our supporters aren't governments. It's everyday people who donate what they can mm-hmm. to help people who have far less around the world. Uh, and we try to make that money go as far as possible we look to uh, buy and preposition stock, which reduces costs uh, and also helps us respond more effectively. And we also try to think about durable solutions. So when we think about emergency shelter, people aren't displaced for a few months. Sometimes it's years. And so we try mm-hmm. to provide uh, a one-stop solution that will keep them going for a longer time so we don't need to respond again. Uh, mm-hmm. That's our hope. Uh, the challenge we have is that more disasters occurring in more parts of the world more frequently than ever before due to climate change and, of course, conflict. And that makes it a real challenge. And it's really important we communicate with supporters to show how far their money is going. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about um, you know, giving an all-round uh, solution to 
you know, refugees. I mean, can you explain the ways in which you know, your charity, Shelterbox, uh, actually do this uh, you know, in these crisis areas? Because, you know, to be where you are, located in Cornwall, and to actually have been able to, um, you know, uh, aid over 2 million people across 98 countries is quite a feat. In itself. Well, the way we do it is to forward base all our supplies. So we have warehousing in Panama, in Dubai, oh, okay. uh, in the Philippines. Uh, and so it's much closer to regions that are likely to be affected. So, mm-hmm. for example, the recent flooding in Pakistan, yeah. we were able to move pre-positioned supplies from Dubai to Pakistan and to mm-hmm. those affected communities. And of course, in terms of what we provide, we have a range of items that we can offer So something that might be suitable, such as a mosquito net that's treated with repellent in Pakistan, wouldn't work in Ukraine, where a stove to keep people warm through the winter is what's needed. Mm -hmm. So whatever we adapt, whatever whatever we innovate, we are led by what people need to live in the conditions in which they're displaced. Mm -hmm. So it's it's uh, you're more looking at that conflict area, you know, the weather conditions, the, the the demands that those unfortunately those those refugees in those conflict areas and it's almost like a bespoke tailor-made solution then that's right no two responses require exactly the same kits it really depends on what are the items that are likely to be needed what have people told us we do a needs assessment and talk to the affected communities before we bring the kits in and of course we also ask them uh, afterwards did it have an impact did mm-hmm. it give you the things you wanted to make you feel that you had a home after disaster. Mm-hmm. So uh, also then, uh, Sanj, what, what measures does Shelterbox implement to adapt you know, its emergency shelter uh, and aid provision in response to the increasing number of extreme weather events? Because you know, we've, we're seeing it now. Uh, and it's not just, say, for instance, you know, during the winter period where it's you know, particularly cold, uh, in the Middle East, but also, like you, you pointed out, you know these extreme weather um, events like the flooding in Pakistan, because there must be like a huge demand of certain resources. That's right, and it's important to say first of all that it is the wealthiest countries by GDP mm-hmm. that typically produce the vast majority of cl- carbon emissions that cause mm-hmm. climate change in part. Mm-hmm. But uh, it that, is that's the, a conversation uh, for another day, Sanj. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Unfortunately, but it is. It is the countries mm. uh, on the forefront of climate disasters that we work with who often are, are not the uh, cause of these uh, changes in climate. So we have to really make, make sure we're meeting their needs. And we do that by firstly thinking about innovation. So, for example, most areas we're working with refugees and displaced people, they are suffering due to drought or lack of clean water. So we've provided a new and improved water filter that can Uh, filter 200,000 litres of water compared to the old one, which is 1,000 Mm litres. We pre-position supplies so that we can respond that much faster to areas that we know it's a question of when, not if, they're going to be affected by climate change, whether that's flooding or drought uh, or other kind of uh, climate-related disasters. So I think it's really important also to communicate the stories of those affected who Mm. are seeing conditions worsening affecting crops that they've planted and also the security of their homes and their loved ones because they're being displaced not once but many times Mm, because i mean that's the 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 sorry tale because say for instance if we look at syria in itself you know there's a massive uh i think six 
to 7 million who are actually internally displaced within Syria. So even if, say for instance, you know, you've got away from conflict within uh, your locality and you've made, made you know, a residence somewhere else in the country and you've like trying to have some hope, right? Um, it's taken away from you. And, you know, that's, that's, that I think is one of the problems that uh, we're, we're facing on a global uh, scale regarding conflict. That's right. And being displaced within your own country, like the six million you mentioned in Syria, mm-hmm. can be as terrifying, as lonely and as frustrating as being displaced into another country because you are in your home country, but you're not at home. And what we try to provide is the emergency shelter that can give you at least as a family some sense of a place that you can call home till you can return to your uh, actual home. Mm, Some some normality in an unnormal situation. Well, uh, Sanj Shifkan, thank you very much for joining me this afternoon on the uh, Drive Time Show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good day. 0208 687 or tweet me at Voice of Islam UK. And, you know, these stories that we've heard from or, you know, these recounts for uh, the situations that um, refugees find themselves in is just, you know, it's just bewildering, really, because, you know, we sit and we worry about, you know, maybe not being able to pay uh, the fuel bill. And it is a worry. Right. Because it's something that we never really uh, I think as, as I was speaking to James earlier on, uh, fuel poverty wasn't a, um, I suppose, a description that uh, would be ascribed to anyone living in the UK. But can you imagine what it'd be like if, say, for instance, you know, you are a refugee and you're fleeing from your home uh, and you know, you, you're actually fleeing for your life and you're just, uh, I think in James's words, you know, you're, you're just trying to survive. And also, you know, I asked you to, to picture the, the, you know, just even if you get into a camp and you're surviving, what is the next stage? Uh, you can spend years, decades in camps. Uh, Cristiano was saying his experience in those camps uh, uh, the refugee camps in Rwanda. You know, some people, some families have been there for over a decade. So, you know, this, um, I suppose, this displaced uh, quality of life becomes your norm. And, you know, that, that, that can't be a good thing. I mean, if we look at in terms of, um, you know, what Islam, uh, you know, what, what Islam can give us in terms of a viewpoint regarding this. Now, uh, you know, there are political divisions, ideological divisions, religious divisions, uh, and the divisions between man versus man in society. If there is any kind of difference, there will be conflict. So the fundamental message, really, of Islam is that, uh, you know, trust to the unity of God, Uh, and the establishment uh, of the unity of mankind. And this in itself binds uh, both together by ties of practical brotherhood. Uh, Unity is strength, ultimately. 
Now, Islam is a universal religion revealed by God for the guidance of all mankind and is above any personal bias, tribal prejudice and ignorant sectarianism. To see the extraordinary depth and beauty of life, the immensity of all living things, one must have intrinsically peace. And that peace is denied wherever there is poverty and injustice. No nationalistic government, domestic government, can ever solve poverty because it is a global problem. Now, under uh, one of the pillars of Islam, the institution of zakat, charity, it is the duty uh, of uh, a Muslim to give 2.5% uh, 2.5% uh, of their wealth and capital on a yearly basis. Now, if, say for instance, you had to do this, and everyone had to do this, not just Muslims, all right, and you actually gave it to the state, and the state divvied up all that wealth amongst others. I mean, in other terms, this is you know, a form of taxation, but used for the benefit of the poor. Now, the concept of social class is obviously and is certainly relevant today. According to the latest uh, 2022 data from YouGov, 68%, so almost 70% of young people think that their life chances are broadly determined by their parents' socioeconomic background. Now, this is totally in contrast to what Islam teaches us. And what Islam teaches us is that all human beings are equal and no one is superior to another, whether it be due to their origin, colour, uh, gene or race. The only difference actually in the sight of God between any individual, so not their race, colour or creed or religion, actually, is the degree of righteousness. Uh, in Islam, we call that taqwa. Now, Muslim countries uh, involved are those who follow the teaching about which God has stated that it has been perfected and God has called Muslims the best of people. Now, the reasons given for persistent violent conflict among Muslims include, unfortunately, border disputes. Uh, the Middle East strategic importance between East and West uh, and oil, I suppose. Uh, now, in this regard, Islam actually clearly states that Muslims should act upon and call people to do what is good and avoid and forbid what is bad. The strong and more fortunate should help the weak and less fortunate. The rich should help the poor. No one should usurp the property and rights uh, of others. Now, obviously, this sounds you know quite simple, but if you look at it, you know, if we look at uh, how some, say, for instance, Saudi Arabia, uh, those Gulf states have been blessed with the uh, excess of oil. Why not use that not just for your own country's wealth, obviously, but to help you know on a global basis. Um, it befuddles me why that doesn't exist. I mean, you know, the wealth, unfortunately, in globally in this world is accrued 
into the hands of the few. And unfortunately, the vast majority of us uh, are suffering because of that, or they're suffering poverty. I mean, if we look in in terms of you know what's happening around the world in these conflict uh, areas, so many millions are actually being displaced and having to uh, having to you know, flee their homes. So it's it's just uh, a situation whereby um, His Holiness, uh, the worldwide uh, head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Uh, has stated that unless world leaders and nations do not do rights or look at the rights of uh, their peoples and ultimately uphold justice, then um, you know this equity or or this inequity in society will always prevail. Now, God states regarding these situations: Oh, or say, Oh, my people. Act as best you can. I too am acting. Soon you will know who will be the ultimate reward of the abode. Surely the wrongdoers shall not prosper. So this is um, chapter 6, verse 136. The uh, Holy Prophet, uh, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, has likened the true spirit of Islamic brotherhood to that of a building every part of which reinforces other parts and, as an undivided symbol of unity, commanded Muslims, when lined up for prayer, to stand together shoulder to shoulder like a solid wall, leaving no space for even a rod to pass between them. Now, you know, where, you know, did actually God create inequality? Because that's what is the root problem, is this inequality uh, in society, and um, effectively, you know, the, it is that age-old uh, argument: the haves and the have-nots. Now, one of the principal causes of social inequality is the accumulation of property and wealth in a few hands, so that the common people are deprived of all chances of acquiring wealth themselves. And to deal with this evil. Islam compulsorily distributes property uh, and assets among a large number of their heirs. Now, God gives us opportunities to grow and develop spiritually, individually, and collectively. You know, it may be truly said that there has never been a class system in Islam. Uh, Islam is neither in terms of political um, ideology, uh, capitalist, or socialist. You know, we must apply spiritual principles uh, to solve this inequality. The Holy Quran says, Whatever Allah has given to his messenger as spoils from the people of the towns is for Allah and for the messenger and for the near of kin and the orphans and the needy and the wayfarer that it may not circulate only among those of you who are rich and whatsoever the messenger gives you, take it. And whatsoever he forbids you, abstain from that. And fear Allah. Surely Allah is severe in retribution. So with that verse, I'll conclude this uh, first hour. And our first topic, uh, we go to news. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording. And lines are now closed.
أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن محمدا listening to the voice of islam radio assalamu alaikum peace and blessings to our listeners out there welcome to monday's edition of the drive time show you're here live with myself talib man uh, in our studios here in south london so in our first hour we uh, approached the subject of a harsh winter and um, looked at uh, in terms of refugees and those who are displaced uh, now in our second hour we're looking at preaching um, and coin the phrase convert or else now in Islam one of our goals is to actually propagate the religion itself and uh, it's a fundamental duty that God Almighty has put on all Muslims to to um, propagate the message of Islam now on the significance of preaching and actually the status of preachers uh, Allah says you are the best people raised for the good of mankind. You enjoin what is good and forbid evil. So this is chapter 3, verse 111 uh, of the Holy Quran. Now, in the five-volume commentary regarding this, the verse is explained as such. As Islam is the greatest good, so Muslims have been enjoined to convey its message to the whole world. It may also be pointed out that uh, pointed out here that according to this verse the excellence of the muslim people is governed by and is subject to the above conditions i.e preaching islam to mankind and enjoining what is good and forbidding what is evil mere lip service right uh, of islam cannot entitle anyone to claim excellence and uh, what I mean by lip service is, you know, if you just go through the, let's say, salat, let's say prayer, and you go through the rituals of prayer, you perform your uh, five daily prayers, but you don't perform them with conviction and with that sole purpose of making communion with your God, with Allah Ta'ala, then... Is that not but playing lip service? It's just following a tradition. Uh, it's being almost a Muslim by default. So, obviously, this uh, chapter, um, or this verse in the Holy Quran, I should say, you know, you are the best people raised for the good of mankind. You enjoin what is good and forbid evil. Then the first caveat must be that you yourself must be you know, one of those, uh, you know, one of the 
best people who are raised for the good of mankind. Now, you know, we are instructed to call upon the Lord with wisdom and have been given a clear injunction that there is no actual compulsion in the religion of Islam. So you can't compel anyone, you can't force anyone to believe in Islam. Now, unfortunately, you know, we see uh, the following convert or else approach to preaching, whether it be um, on these uh, preaching stores that you see uh, on the high streets or whether you see on social media sites nowadays, yeah, because, you know, we are the, I suppose, the generation of social media. Now, you know, when you see this, you know, we're, what we want to actually provide you with is actually the correct approach or what should be actually the correct approach to preaching. Now, preaching as advised um, by the Quran. So, you know, actually the Holy Quran does tell us how we should be preaching and also uh, by the um, example of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him. Uh, Allah Almighty throws light on the strategy of preaching and says, Call unto uh, unto thy Lord, uh, call unto the way of thy Lord with wisdom and good and good, goodly exhortation, and argue with them in a way that is best. Surely thy Lord knows best who has strayed from his way, and he who knows those who are rightly guided. Wisdom in this context, in this context uh, refers to the insight and consciousness through which a person speaks appropriately, taking the right opportunity into consideration. I mean... If you think about it on a day-to-day basis, you know, if you're at work, you're stressed at work, you've got a big project on, you've got a big deadline, then, you know, it's it's obviously not the right time to be preaching or trying to um, show the better aspects of a religion to somebody. So it's the context, it's the timing, it all has to be taken into consideration. Now, the current head of the worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness, Muslim Masra Ahmad, may Allah strengthen his hand. Upon explaining you know, what wisdom means in this context, uh, one meaning of hikmah, which is wisdom, is knowledge. Knowledge is required to carry out preaching. Therefore, firstly, you need to increase your knowledge so that when you have uh, an intellectual conversation or discussion with someone, they should be spoken to in a manner based on their level of understanding. So what I will say to you or what I will direct you is just to concentrate on that last sentence or that last expression of His Holiness. They should be spoken to in a manner based on their level of understanding. So if we look at, say, for instance, um, all those prophets that have come preceding uh, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, uh, and after, right, um, they've originated primarily in uh, the subcontinent, right, 
in the Middle East. So you can imagine if you were to have a really highbrow conversation regarding religion to a, say, for instance, a a a peasant farmer, would they understand? Fully understand that concept of God and the unity of God, so it has to be a case of、um, you have to tailor or bespoke the message that you're trying to give to your audience, and hence that's why yeah you know, I'm directing everyone to to the last、um, sentence of His Holiness's, which is. They should be spoken to in a manner based on their level of understanding. So we observe the same practice、uh, taken up by the Holy Prophet,、uh, peace and blessings be upon him. As one salient characteristic of the Holy Prophet, his strategy of preaching was that he always paid attention to the intellectual capacity of the addressee, so whoever he was speaking to.、Uh, now this has been indicated. In a hadith regarding the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him. Now,、uh, Hazrat Jibr、uh, bin Salim says, "I came to the Holy Prophet and asked him, 'Are you a messenger of God?'" The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, responded, "I am a messenger of that God who, when misfortune befalls you, and you call upon Him, will cause grains and vegetables to grow, and when your camel is lost." While you are in a barren land, he will bring your camel back. Now, in this hadith, the Holy Prophet peace and blessings be upon him drew the attention of、uh, Hazrat Jibir to many such things which were in his daily observation and experience. So, that's what I mean by almost tailor make or tailor making the message that you want to preach regarding your religion, and in this. Instance Islam to your audience. Now, to speak、uh, more in depth regarding、uh, this, I'm joined by Imam Marwan Gill, who is the missionary of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in Argentina.、Uh, peace and blessings be upon you,、uh, Imam Marwan. Thank you once again for joining me on the Drive Time Show. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Jazakallah for inviting me. No, you're always a, a welcome guest on our show. So we're talking about preaching, and、uh, it's it's I suppose characterizes you know convert or else. Now, as Argentina is predominantly a Catholic country, I mean, how has your experience been with preaching to the indigenous you know Argentinian population? I mean, yeah, are there any specific incidents that you would you know care to share with us and our listeners? Yeah, yeah, sure. I think, as you mentioned, I think、uh, obviously Islam is a, is a universal religion, but it's always very important to keep in mind the people you address.、Mm-hmm. So, as well as you mentioned that it's a Catholic country, but also keeping in mind that the current pope is、uh, not only the first Argentinian but the first South American in general.、Mm-hmm. Um, in this sense,、um, uh, I think it is very important to keep in mind as well the sentiments of the people you address. So,、um, for example, I, I, from my past experience, as whenever we have the belief sessions,、um, I think、uh, people are especially very keen and very attentive when we speak about Jesus in、mm-hmm. Islam,、uh, peace be upon him, alayhi salam. 
Uh, and uh, also, when we participate in different book fairs, I think we see especially the, the keen interest in the book Jesus in India, written by the founder of our community, by the promised Messiah, Islam. So in this regard, um, I think we can tell that people, they're definitely interested, and they listen to your message, but it's also important how you convey your message. If you give them the impression that you just want to attack them or just want to prove to them that they're wrong. Mm-hmm. So I also had experience that they also get, uh, in this sense, a bit, uh, uh, also in this sense, uh, it's, it's uncomfortable for them. But if you just share with them your values, your teachings, or your point of view, so I had the past experience that people uh, very attentively listen to you, very kindly. Uh, they even say that it makes sense, it's logical. Um, but on the other hand, many times they also say that for them, it's now, <laughs> and the Quran also mentioned that many people follow our religion out of their tradition. They reply even that it's the religion of our forefathers. So that's also what I've come across. So many people, they appreciate, they say it's logical. It happened even a, a person came, he bought, he, he bought the book, and after reading him, he came, he said it's so logical, it's much more logical mm-hmm. um, than our view, our Christian view. But he said, but for me, it's so, so hard now to change the, the, the sentiments or the belief which I, I he was brought up with. Birth, I, I had now. Mm. Yeah, I can I can understand. So it's it's you know the tradition of your forefathers, your your grandparents, your parents before you. It's very hard to go against, I suppose, that upbringing. Um, and you know, it, it's. Um, yeah, one of the points that you were mentioning there, I mean, have there been, um, how have you dealt with uh, the area of conflict regarding uh, the Prophet Jesus then? Because obviously to our understanding, uh, the Ahmadiyya Muslim understanding that, you know, Jesus did not die on the cross. And, you know, this is one of the core tenets of Catholicism. Yes, definitely. I mean, if you take away the, the crucifixion, uh, I don't think anything remains uh, from the Christian belief. All the yeah. Christian belief is, has, has its origin in the belief that Jesus died on the cross to save us from the, from the sin. So in this sense, uh, I think it's a very sensitive topic for them. Mm-hmm. And, and the way and manner, that's why I always keep in mind or I try to keep in mind, especially the Quranic commandment, that when you pull the people towards the truth, they always use wisdom and uh, like sensibility. You know, mm-hmm. it's like wise, kind words. Mm-hmm. So in this sense, I think it's very important, and which I also experienced. I had also different talks with bishops. They invited me, and when you start speaking about this topic, you can tell, you can tell from their <laughs> gestures and their body language that uh, now they, they give you more attention, and they give attention to how you express your point. Um, but also, I think um, it's uh, not also just Jesus, but also I think for them it's very interesting also the concept of Virgin Mary mm-hmm. uh, in Quran. So even like many Christians, they came and said, like, look, you even much more respect, much more respect, and um, highlight much more the, the the elevated status of Virgin Mary than us ourselves Christians. So I can even I remember I had the last year the, the honor the privilege to to meet the Pope in a private audience. So oh. I showed him I showed him the chapter 19 Virgin Mary. Mm-hmm. I said, look, here is a chapter which has also a very important a high importance for us. And he was also surprised, and he said, yeah, I went even to a Muslim country, and I was invited to a mosque, which was called even Mary. And mm-hmm. I said, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's very common for us Muslims, mm-hmm. um, because the whole chapter has even been dedicated to Virgin Mary. So in this sense, they're also surprised, but I think um, the, the topic of, uh, as I said, the crucifixion of Jesus, 
is uh, I think the key the key aspect. Mm-hmm. So, um, Imam Marwan, yeah, regarding your experience as the missionary in Argentina for for the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, I mean, how accepting um, are Argentinians to the message of Islam? Then, I mean, are you finding, say, for, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but say, for instance, if you look at the demographic, and it's actually um, a point that you uh, stated in in just now that. Uh, it's very hard uh, for um, uh, Catholics, right, uh, to to really believe in something else, which of which their forefathers had passed down to them as a tradition. So, with you know, keeping that in my mind, I mean, you know, how is the message of Islam, you know, is it being accepted? I mean, is it being accepted by maybe younger Argentinians than the older ones? No, I think it's, it's um, uh, you have to also keep in mind that Argentina, amongst the Latin American countries, is a very open-minded country. Right. Um, so you have like, religious diversity and people mm-hmm. feel comfortable to speak and discuss religious issues. So it's not a narrow-minded society. People feel comfortable. They're open for interesting dialogue, for interesting discussions. Uh, and also you see that um, Islam, the message of Islam, when you convey them with wisdom and all the beauty, people are even ready to accept it. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing is that they convert <laughs> into Muslims. Other thing is that they accept Islam as a beautiful religion and the message, they agree with the message of Islam. So in this sense, I had the experience that even elderly people, they listen to your message. I've been invited to different churches mm-hmm. um, and they accept, they respect you as a Muslim, they respect your teachings. Um, but I think that the key point is that I think it's our duty to convey the message. What I see is that Many people still in Argentina, they have so many misconceptions about Islam. They don't uh, really got someone to speak to, to remove their doubts about Islam because mostly the only source of information about Islam is the media mm-hmm. and all the misconceptions which are portrayed by the media. So I think in this sense, I see the main challenge um, that if we achieve to convey the message in its pure form, mm-hmm. I think people here are ready to accept it and inshallah also then to accept Islam as their, their path. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think it's in this sense, uh, in Argentina, I feel quite comfortable as a missionary conveying mm-hmm. the true message of Islam. Mm, excellent. So, um, yeah, what, regarding that, conveying and the methodology of conveying the, the the message of Islam. I mean, what is the best approach that you have found uh, to preaching and to bleak, as we call it? Uh, and you know, can people from you know different nations, uh, you know, be preached to, or those indigenous populations, can they be preached to in the same way? Yes, definitely. I think you always have to keep in mind, as, as you as well mentioned at the beginning. I think you have to always keep in mind the audience. That's why, for example, let's see, let's also. Take as an example the Holy Quran. The Holy Quran claims that the Prophet has been invited, uh, has been sent to all mankind. It mm-hmm. says, I was sent to all mankind. But then you find that um, the Islam and the Quran addresses certain issues in a certain way. So, for example, if you even analyze the revelations of the Quran and the Meccan period, it was more emphasized to bring those people who worship idols or idolatry to bring them first to the monotheistic concept mm-hmm. and then further establish the, the concept. So I think in the same sense, um, you have to always keep in mind the society you address. So it's very important, I think, which I have experienced as my, my last year as a missionary on ground level, that always the easiest part is first to get their attention by showing the similarities 
between Christianity and Islam. That's why also in the Holy Quran we find the commandment, especially for us Muslims, that when we speak to Christians and Jews, especially Ahlul Kitab, as defined in the Holy Quran, that call them and invite them to speak about the similarities between both religions mm-hmm. and uh, express to them that you all worship the same Lord. And mm-hmm. based upon this, I think once you establish this common ground, then you can further elaborate. Also, I think it's important that by declaring them that you don't deny the root of their religion. Mm-hmm. Rather, you Islam testifies the truthfulness of their origin by saying that Prophet Moses or Prophet Jesus as a Muslim, also we recognize them, or even in other forms to say that to be a Muslim, you have to accept them as prophets. The thing when you base then further your message on this ground level, then I think it's, it's also from their side uh, much more uh, probable that it's, they're going to pay more attention towards your preaching or your words. Mm-hmm. I mean, on the point that uh, you know, it was a you know great honor to meet uh, His Holiness the Pope uh, for yourself, and you know just for him to actually, um, and you know he's the highest, I suppose, uh, you know Catholic entity on this you know in the world, right? Elected that is, and for him to just say, look, you know, uh, you know, didn't realize. Or hadn't occurred to him the importance of even you know uh, the importance of of Mary in the uh, in Islam um, shows to me that actually you know even being so I suppose versed in Catholicism, but maybe not so versed in other religions, and then maybe that this is actually. Um, the opportunity actually to have that uh, discourse to have that conversation because if he's so you know you've got to believe that he pretty much knows uh, the bible you know inside out um being the pope that actually you still have opportunities to explore uh, the similarities and those core beliefs that all major religions have Completely, I completely agree. I think there's so much, so much more that we can share and where we can find ground level and common ground as a monotheistic religion. Also, it happens that I have few Jewish friends here, as uh, you might be aware that uh, Buenos Aires is one of the largest or has one of the largest Jewish communities mm-hmm. outside of Israel. And uh, so I have also a weekly program on a Jewish uh, radio channel, which is called Shalom Salam, Dialogue Between a Jew and a Muslim. Mm-hmm. And many of the Jewish audience are also surprised to find out the similarities between Sharia and their their law called Alaha. You know, so also that's uh, I think in this sense, I think it's um, very important to for us as well as missionaries to give attention to especially the wisdom of this Quranic commandment that first come on the ground, mm-hmm. on the common ground, right? And from mm-hmm. there on, then uh, obviously we as uh, Muslims then we can uh, portray and show the further beauty of Islam by further branches of our religion. Mm, mm, of, yeah, definitely. I mean, did you, um, when you first you know, got to Argentina, I mean, did you face any opposition you know, from people of different religions, you know, whether they be Catholics or even uh, non-Amdi Muslims? I mean, if so, how did you handle it? How was it resolved? 
Um, I think there's uh, what I've uh, so far experienced is that on social media, especially there's always many uh, quite a hate and aggression, as you see, mm-hmm. when you speak about Islam. Um, and also it happened to me that once we did a um, social experiment that I'm a Muslim and I love Jesus. Oh, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> and so uh, there, yeah, I could see that some evangelical people, especially they, they quite felt offended by this expression that I, I'm Muslim and I love Jesus. Mm-hmm. So um, there the discussion got a bit heated. Um, but other than this, uh, mostly I think once you have this one-on-one conversation and you can remove their misconceptions, I think then it's quite uh, productive and positive, the, the, the dynamic of the conversation. In regards of your question towards other um, Muslims, mm-hmm. um, yes, there are also, we find what we see all over the Muslim countries, you mm-hmm. know, so um, very close-minded and many, many times uh, lack of ability to, to have a simple dialogue. They just come from before with certain prejudices and um, they don't even allow you to get into a simple conversation or to introduce your beliefs. Um, but uh, now by the time, I think uh, they can see that our aim is only to convey the true message of Islam. Alhamdulillah, some communities here in Buenos Aires, some Muslim communities, they have now opened up a bit more their hearts and their doors, mm-hmm. and we have uh, now much better communication and uh, inter, let's say, like dialogue or inter-network than, than earlier. But I suppose, you know, Buenos Aires, Argentina must be still on that wave of World Cup euphoria, um, you know, with Messi being the, the centre point of it. I mean, everyone must be walking, you know, on you know, in cloud nine, really, still. Yes, yes, that's definitely. I think it was a very historic moment for the country and it was the highlight for us also to close up the, the, the previous year. So I think still the people here are still in the wise of the World Cup and uh, I think it's going to continue for for a few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> if not months. Uh, I mean, it's been a long time. It's been a long time coming for uh, for Messi and Argentina. Uh, and I, I suppose it's just, you know, if you're that way inclined. Yeah, I'm old enough to remember 86 and Maradona and the brilliance of Maradona. And uh, I've actually... Uh, been able to see the brilliance of uh, Messi as well in the last World Cup. But with that, um, it's always a pleasure. No, 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 please, please, let me interrupt you. Please don't ask me now to choose between Maradona and Messi. Please, please, please. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to go for the diplomatic answer, so I'm not going to answer that question. Right, yeah, it's, it's, uh, that's, that's an even harder question to say than, uh, you know, uh, being a Muslim and saying, I love Jesus. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> so anyway, with that, no, it's always a pleasure speaking to you, Imam Marwan. Thank you very much for joining me this afternoon on the Drive Time Show. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you very much. Have a good day. 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. I mean, if you want to tweet me and just uh, get into this kind of like uh, off the cuff poll, who was the, who is GOAT or who was the, who is GOAT? Is it Messi or is it Maradona? And uh, I do remember being an England supporter, how Maradona basically waltzed around the whole of the England team and scored. I mean, okay, you you did have that hand of God goal, but um, on that one hand, then another goal of sheer brilliance, uh, whereby I believe uh, Terry Butcher was left 
you know, basically uh, like on his bum uh, several times, actually. So it's uh, it's most really one of those conversations which will go around and round. But coming back to um, preaching again, yeah. So we were, you know, given a very good insight regarding that uh, from Imam Marwan out in Argentina. And I suppose, yeah, unfortunately, these so-called or, you know, uh, self-proclaimed Muslims of today uh, have actually defamed Islam so much through their hypocritical and actual forceful behavior that Islam is seen or perceived by the world as a religion that teaches forceful conversion. Um, So, for example, let's look at uh, the hijab law in Iran, where all the females, be them Muslim or non-Muslims, are required by law to wear the hijab. And, you know, we've seen the actual public, um, I suppose, backlash regarding that uh, in Iran uh, last year. Now, Additionally, the police have actually been put in place by the government, uh, the Iranian government, to enforce this law and punish in case of disobedience. These are all in stark contrast with the teachings of Islam, that there is no compulsion in religion. Hijab in Islam is a commandment of God to which Muslim women abide by as a representation of their devotion to God. Hijab's the the hijab's purpose is to liberate women from the from the clutches of today's beauty standards and enables women uh, to excel within all dimensions of society. So not to be seen as purely a superficial uh, on the face of things, but you know to appreciate their knowledge as opposed to just appreciating or appreciating their beauty. Now, no government, therefore, has the right to interfere into religious matters and force the hijab even on Muslim women. Now, it is a result of such force that Western society and media is able to propagate the hijab as a symbol of oppression and subjugation of women. What's happening in Pakistan really is no different. Pakistan is another so-called Muslim country where the constitution interferes in matters of religion. For example, wave of hatred and persecution against the Ahmadiyya Muslim community is widespread and engraved uh, in the public by the mullahs. The mullahs are uh, so-called clerics. The The doctrine of jihad is misunderstood and mistaught by these mullahs who then use the doctrine to justify the brutalities and killings of Uh, members of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. It was for this decline of Muslims, the reformation and revival of Islam, that the Holy Prophet, uh, peace and blessings be upon him, prophesied the coming of the Messiah. The Ahmadiyya Muslim community believes His Holiness, Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, uh, may Allah be pleased with him, to be that promised Messiah. The promised Messiah actually uh, explains the doctrine of jihad as understood and propagated by the Muslim uh, divines of this age who are called Mulvis is utterly incorrect. It can lead to nothing except that by their forceful preaching they would convert common people into wild beasts and would deprive them of all the good qualities of human beings. 
He also further states, why do these people not reflect upon the fact that 1300 years ago, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, had said concerning the promise of Messiah, he will put an end to war. Uh, and with that, I'm actually joined by my third guest, of, uh, sorry, my third, my next guest, I should say, uh, of the uh, day, which uh, who is Emma X. Narova, who is a recent convert to the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Uh, peace and blessings be upon you, Emma. Thank you for joining me on the Drive Time Show this afternoon. Assalamu alaikum, Jazakallah for having me. So, um, we're talking about preaching and uh, that idea, uh, unfortunately, that um, I suppose Western media has uh, that you know you either, in terms of Islam, you you convert or else. Now, you know what attracted you to the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. I mean, can you share your story of com uh, of actually converting uh, to Islam? Yes, I can certainly do that. Uh, it's a bit of a long story, but I'm going to try to make it short for, for these purposes. Okay, um, that's fine. So um, my parents are atheists, so they didn't raise me with any religious connection or anything. Mm -hmm. And I suppose I always believed in God, but I didn't really know how to connect with him. Right. And um, I started thinking about religion more deeply approximately two, three years ago when I started working as a trainee psychologist. So I'm currently doing a, a doctorate uh, in psychology and I work for the NHS mm -hmm. as, a, as a trainee. And um, I remember at that time I was working for a bereavement service. And um, I just remember seeing how people were religious were drawing on their faith to help them make meaning of difficult life situations mm -hmm. such as losing a loved one um and and in general i just i just felt like they were um they found it a bit easier to cope with uh, anything that life was kind of throwing at them mm -hmm. and uh, this prompted me to look into religion more um and, and at that stage it was mainly for work purposes to understand my clients better um, but I suppose also for personal ones, because I was craving spirituality and mm -hmm. essentially searching for the truth. So did you find, uh, Emma, that you, you you felt that there was something lacking in yourself then? Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not sure how to describe it. Um, it was definitely... Um, yeah, I, I suppose maybe a lack of meaning, lack of purpose mm -hmm. uh, that I was experiencing. Um, uh, yeah, I couldn't really um, put any words to it, but um, I just remember how it felt. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, what I did was I initially started looking into Christianity and Judaism uh, because these religions were um, closest to my culture and background. And I have to admit that at that time, I left Islam out because I had many prejudices about it and mm -hmm. I also... I had some of the typical um, misconceptions that you can see in the media mm -hmm. about Islam. Um, and I actually only became interested in Islam after speaking to a friend of mine who was a Muslim um, about different religions. Um, and I like what he was saying. He was saying um, how Islam is compatible with science, which is my field of study. And um, I was also quite convinced about the idea um, that Jesus, peace be upon him, was a prophet, mm -hmm. not son of God, which is something that always confused me about Christianity. I remember that as a, as a kid even. Um, and then I started reading the Quran and doing my own research about Islam and 
I increasingly be, became convinced that there is only one God and that that God is Allah. Um, and I suppose I found what I was searching for, so mm-hmm. that spirituality and truth. Um, and intellectually, everything made sense, um, but my heart still wasn't in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would try praying, but I felt no connection. And so I kind of put religion on the side and I just went ahead with my daily life as usual, you know, focusing on my studies. Um, and then, um, I suppose now we're getting into um, why I became interested in Amadea specifically. Um, and so this happened, um, uh, basically I found out about Amadea from uh, my now husband. Mm-hmm. Um, and he told me that this is a true Islam, which obviously sounded great. Um, but I knew I had to do my own research mm-hmm. to find out if, if he was right. And uh, I asked him to recommend me some literature and... I got in touch with um, people at the Batul Satu Mosque mm-hmm. um, that had a lot of questions about the community. I also wanted to see the mosque and just meet more people. Um, and then I was um, reading the relevant literature, the philosophy and the teachings of Islam, Noah's Ark, the invitation to Ahmadiyya. Um, at that point, I just realized I could no longer agree with the Orthodox view um, that Jesus was uh, taken to heaven by Allah to you know, descend at a later stage and a Jesus lookalike was crucified by the Jews instead. Uh, and I think the invitation to Ahmadiyyad was particularly important in convincing me and believing that Jesus died a natural death and also of the truth of the promised Messiah, um, may peace be upon him. Um, and at that time, I also started praying for God to give me signs. Um, that all of this was true. Um, and I remember back then I had a dream with His Holiness, Hazur, may Allah be his helper, um, uh, where I was having a meeting with him. And unfortunately, he didn't say anything to me, or at least I don't remember it, um, which was a bit disappointing. But I just remember how I felt in the dream. And I remember I felt content and happy. Um, and... Uh, yeah, that was around the time where I decided to convert because I started feeling a sense of inner peace and mm-hmm. yeah, I stopped worrying about the things that would normally make me really anxious. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, for the first time, um, you know, I felt it in my heart. So I suppose... Mm. A sense of serenity. Ahmadiyya, yes, exactly. And I suppose why Ahmadiyya, the, the simple answer is because it has yeah. a one-on-one relationship with God. Mm-hmm. Mm. A uh, very compelling story, actually. And I think most converts to Islam and, you know, our brand, I should say, of Islam, Ahmadiyyat, find that, that uh, it's not just, it's because ultimately that journey, and you, you know, we're all just signposts, right, along that, mm-hmm. that journey. And um, you yourself, that individual, has to actually make that connection with your creator, with Allah Ta'ala. So, yeah, as a convert, I mean, what could you tell us about the sentiments of someone, of a person who is being preached to? I mean, what's the best way to actually preach to someone? <laughs> um, I mean, obviously not the kind of like, you know, uh, you know, hell hath no fury or wrath, you know, you have to believe. That's that's yeah. a negative, right? But I mean, what is the the positive of that? Um, I think the best way to preach someone is to truly embody the values that you're preaching about. Mm-hmm. 
because you can speak as much as you want about values and principles. But if you don't demonstrate these things, then it's really difficult to make someone believe you or even mm-hmm. listen to you. Um, and um, like in, in my case, a prime example of a person who had all of these things was my late father-in-law who passed away last month. Mm-hmm. May he rest in peace. And he dedicated his life to the Jamaat and, and his family and, and truly embodied the values that Ahmadiyya teaches. He was mm-hmm. so pure and pious. Mm-hmm. And my husband and I, we always say that if we achieve at least 50% of what he has done for his family and for the Jamaat, we'll be very happy. Mm-hmm. So, so it's really that embodiment of the values. And that's something you can't fake, that either you have that or you don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'd say that's the, the main thing. Um, another thing um, that I really enjoyed was when people were sharing personal stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and for example, um, this, like at the beginning of my journey, I spoke, um, to a lot of people from the outreach department, namely Khalid Khan and his wife, Yusra and Anne-Marie Manescu and her husband, Tahir. Um, and they were just sharing their own personal experiences, their journey, their experience of praying and dreams. And I really enjoyed that because it was easy to relate to that rather than speaking about theory. Exactly, and I suppose yeah, as as, as we're talking together, um, yeah, what the expression is just practice what you preach, and that's one of the things, yeah. the core tenets of being a member uh, and following uh, His Holiness's guidance is that you can, I suppose, pay lip service to Islam, lip service mm-hmm. to your religion, but actually, until you practice what you preach, then you know you can't bring anyone to the fold of Islam. Um, you know, uh, Emma, it's been a pleasure speaking to you this afternoon. Thank you very much for joining me uh, on much. the Drive Time Show today. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Thank you. As-salamu'alaikum. 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at uh, Voice of Islam UK. And uh, yeah, I hope that's... Uh, and I think, you know, something that Emma uh, said regarding her... Well, you know, looking for looking for her creator and finding Allah Ta'ala uh, eventually on her journey uh, to Islam. It touches a chord with all converts. And I suppose, you know, when you look at Islam, um, I myself am a convert. I look and I see um, people who are born into Islam. So say, for instance, uh, you know, their parents were born Amdi or born uh, uh, believing into Islam and then thus, therefore, you follow the religion of your parents and your grandparents and your forefathers, right? So something that uh, Imam Marwan was uh, telling us regarding Argentina and his experience of Argentina. So in terms of Islam, I would call those or those you know who are born into the religion by default, so Muslim by default, those who choose the religion, the converts or you know, us converts, it is that wanting. And this is something that uh, touched me um, when I was speaking to Emma or our conversation with Emma was that, you know, we have this, I suppose, void inside of us spiritually um, of which, you know, we're looking for something, you know, that that the answer to our lives. You know, what are we here for? And ultimately, we've been blessed with the message of Islam 
and uh, in 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 fact uh, Islam Ahmadiyat, and that blessing is amazing. Really, truly, is amazing because it gives you, uh, even if you don't know where you're going on or what what your journey is in life, you don't have to worry about that. All you have to worry about is actually just making that communion with God and we are with your creator. But to speak more about preaching uh, on this subject, we're actually joined by Imam Khalid uh, Gonzalez, who is our missionary or the Ahmadiyya Muslim uh, community's missionary in Spain currently. So uh, I believe it's Buenas, uh, Buenas Tardes. Yeah, when I done. salam. Thank you for joining us once again, uh, Imam Khalid. So, we're we're talking about preaching, right? So historically, yeah, we observed the forceful conversion of Muslims to Christianity in Spain. Um, how successful do you think such force proves to actually changing people's hearts? Yes, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question because I have an interesting take on it as well. Um, okay. I think the truth is that there is success in it. There is indeed success in it because if you look at over a long period, right, you see that now I go in the streets and I see that there are, you know, there, like at least 80 to 90% of the people come from a Catholic background, mm-hmm. including like my father. He was a, he was a, he's a convert to, from Catholicism to, uh, to Islam. Right. But the, the truth is obviously, you know, like, like uh, we believe as Muslims that you can you can you can bend the bodies and the and the minds, but you can't bend the heart. So of course, yeah, I mean, there were many people who were persecuted, many Muslims and Jews. Um, and I, I was just reading up upon it before the podcast to make sure my my memory was fresh. But yeah, there was mm-hmm. they had the derogative terms for Jews and Muslims, including for those who converted to Christianity. So it wasn't that oh, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian now. It's like no, we forced you to become a Christian. I'm still recognize you as filth in a sense. Um, but the majority indeed were people who kept their faith, and though they were forced, they still kept, you know, they stayed as, they stayed Jews, you know, mm-hmm. and they stayed as Muslims within. But if you look at over a long period of time, um, Spain is a Catholic country, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there are many people, um, not the current generation, but, you know, the those in their 60s uh, and above, they're, quite a lot of them are quite, you know, they're quite firm in their roots of Catholicism. Mm-hmm. So, I mean... You know, you're you're the imam. You're the imam there for our community, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in Spain. I mean, you know, what is the community doing for the reemergence of Islam in Spain? The reemergence, inshallah, will definitely take place. You know, um, it's been prophesied by the Prophet that Islam will, inshallah, spread all over the world. And for that, what the community is doing right now is, for example, when we go in and preach in the streets, mm-hmm. um, what we call tabligh is you know i've I've given methods of my own but what the community likes doing is for example we set up a stand Mm -hmm. you know um we'll have a few leaflets there anyone can take any leaflets free and we have different topics you know that we cover you know within in those leaflets besides that um i also found a good method which is going around speaking to people with a whiteboard and saying you know in the name of social experimenting speaking to the public and it's usually the, uh, the the young the youngsters who who like to interact more because obviously they've seen this on YouTube and they've seen people doing social experiments. Mm-hmm. So they're quite open to engage. And you ask them, you know, what do you think about this, for example? For example, who invented the big? Who discovered the Big Bang? Sorry. Mm-hmm. And then you'd say, oh, this this uh, this guy called uh, Georges Lemaitre in France, a mm-hmm. hundred years ago. But then you say, oh no, but did you know that it was discovered or it was um, 
revealed by the Quran a thousand four hundred years ago, and that way you can. But there are many different ways. We also do exhibitions, and there are kind of um, uh, yeah, like you can say, you know, with um, in libraries and different parts of not just here in Cordoba, but all mm. over Spain. We have different events that we which we organise mm. uh, throughout the year. So it's, it's, it's a multifaceted approach now. Uh, it's not just. Yeah. Uh, I suppose you know that tablique, that preaching stall on a high street or on a street. Um, you know, there's, there's. Uh, I was like saying on social media, like you were saying, you know, uh, the, I suppose the younger generation now have seen it, whether it be on TikTok, whether it be on Facebook, and then they want to get a part of that. You know, there's, I suppose it's that f- that FOMO, yeah, fear of missing out. They want to try it as well, right? So, I mean, you know. Do you find, you know, because Spain is still predominantly or, you know, predominantly Catholic, right? Um, I mean, do you find there is a resistance to Islamic teachings? Definitely, there is a resistance. Even mm. even those who aren't, don't follow their own religion, you know, they claim to be Christian or they claim to, they even openly claim that they're not Christian, but they mm. come from Christian backgrounds. But, they, but then when you speak to them about Islam, you know, they have this, the thing is here, the agenda is very strong. It's very... It's a very there's a pure like there's a clear narrative what the news want to want to tell the people right and mm. then you have and is that a negative narrative towards very Islam? Negative, very negative. In fact, in fact, speak to the people here in Spain. I genuinely think from the experiences that I've had that they have more of an issue with Barda, the 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 veil in Islam mm-hmm. than with terrorism. In right. fact, a lot of them like a lot of them say, oh, there's a few crazy terrorists over there. We know Muslims aren't like that. But when it comes to the veil, mm-hmm. it's like it's a big, big issue for them, and and it's all over the news, all over mm. the news. In fact, but, but yeah, they, they don't let it go. But Imam uh, Khalid, yeah, is the concept or this issue with the hijab, with the burqa, with the veil, is it because their perception is that Islam coerces and forces this upon women? That's ex- that's exactly what it is. Um, the the sad truth is that they live amongst. Uh, as we call it here, monchas, you know, mm. nuns who walk around with perfect exactly. they, walk, they walk around with perfect covering of themselves, and you tell them, you know, and the funniest thing is um, because they have, they don't, not many of them are religious, right? So, and I wouldn't say many people in the world are nowadays religious, but we're entering a phase of, of atheism, new atheism. So, mm-hmm. so many people do, do, do say that, no, you know, Maryam or Mary, the Virgin Mary, they say that, no, in fact, she, she would wear the veil because it was fashion. Mm-hmm. So, so there are many, you know, the, the interpretations, have I suppose. <laughs> yeah, they, they're very common. I was um, a few about a few weeks ago. I was reciting the Lawad. I was writing the Holy Quran out loud on a loudspeaker in the streets of Cordoba, and I got really good reception. In fact, people there of all races were were like they were they were really engaged. And um, well, of course, um, some people, you know. No, I don't get much opposition, but you know you can tell that not everyone is mm-hmm. is a good with Islam. So okay, you've actually led me on very nicely to 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 my final question for you. Yeah. So I mean, have you faced any opposition from the public? And yeah, when you face this, I mean, like you're saying, you were reciting uh, verses from the Holy Quran, uh, whether it be over a PA system, right, in Cordoba. How did you deal with that then? Um, I don't. You don't get much opposition, if I if I should be honest, because the truth is that now in the world there's so much the idea of of liberation of of well pretty much everything, 
mm-hmm. is so strong that there's no sense really of, you know, you know, what are you doing here? Why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. In fact, most people here say that, you know, I respect your religion. I respect everyone's religion and I respect everyone and that's it. Mm-hmm. Which is a positive, but it's also a negative because it leaves them in the dark. It doesn't mm-hmm. keep them wanting to find out the truth. It keeps them in the dark and they stay ignorant. Ignorant is bliss, mm-hmm. you know, as they say. Mm-hmm. So, so, so yeah, there isn't much opposition. I don't have to face like the first Murabi who came here, Mulvi Gurumalahi's episode. I don't have to face opposition like we did. He was chucked in jail. Yeah, in fact, exactly. he was chucked out of jail. He was chucked out of jail for, for preaching because they couldn't handle him. He was, <laughs> <laughs> he was in, 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 in his work. So yeah. no, thank God I don't have to face anything like that. And and maybe yeah, one day I might have to. But um, but I'm ready for it. And I'll try my best to be patient. Mm-hmm. Um, as we say in, here in Spain, I did todos. There's all types of people. Mm. But um, in terms of preaching, I, I think that people get the wrong message. Um, preaching doesn't mean you have to know everything about Islam, okay? Mm-hmm. Especially the youngsters out there and people, who, and there are many people in the community who have a lot of knowledge. And I, I, I do ask you to please go out and, and speak to people about religion because preaching is not like, oh, I have to be a murabbi, I have to be an imam, I have to be an expert. No, you can just speak about what you believe. Since you mm-hmm. practice it every single day, I'm sure you have that certainty that what you're following is, is true. Mm-hmm. Preaching develops when you start caring about something. Mm-hmm. If someone asks about your family, your mother, someone else, I'm sure you could speak about them for a very long time mm-hmm. because you care about them that much and you, and you pay that much attention to them. Mm-hmm. Now, if you have that love and that care for Islam, then these things will come out naturally. You'll naturally be able to defend Islam. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, very well said, uh, Imam Khalid Gonzalez. Uh, thank you very much for spending time with us this afternoon on the Drive Time Show. Uh, adios. You. And peace and blessings be on. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for joining us. Have a good day. Have a good day. Uh, We're coming to the end of the show now. And I should, you know, just in conclusion regarding preaching, uh, the use of force can never really truly bring a revolutionary change in a person's heart. The aim of preaching should always be to win hearts of people and to bring them to God, not to force them to God. Uh, His Holiness Mirza Maswa Ahmed, uh, head of the worldwide uh, Ahmadi Muslim community, states in one of his Friday sermons that we should also pay attention to setting a good example. Otherwise, our message will be ineffective. We do not practice. We do not practice what we preach. Then others will not accept our call. Our bad examples can affect the good work of others. Therefore, all of us must pay special attention to doing good deeds at all times. And I suppose that goes back to the point uh, earlier on that um, I came across with Emma, one of our guests, that you know her affinity to Islam, uh, it was like, you know, just, you know, uh, you know moth drawn to a, fa- a flame was because of the pureness of the message of Islam. But with that, that brings us to the end of Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. I want to uh, thank our producers, Aisha Malik and Sophia Amr, for the shows that they produced. I thank Habib, uh, our resident to, uh, technician for the day, for a seamless uh, program. And that is today's edition of the Drive Time Show. <laughs>